beautiful this past week, um, maybe a little chillier than I'd hoped. I was walking uh, on, on a pathway I've walked hundreds of times since, um, down from my loft, down here to the downtown campus, and I came across this freshly painted sign, a brand new sign, and it read, the greatest store in the universe. And I thought, man, we've got that here in Kansas City. It was kind of one of those elf moments, if you've ever seen the movie, the world's greatest cup of coffee. And uh, so instantly I thought, man, what's in this store? Surely this is organic produce from under-resourced workers or maybe a fair trade market from a tribe in Africa and maybe a smaller community in Latin America. Maybe this is a bookstore. I love books. A bookstore that provides, you know, reading classes for urban children or maybe better, it's an Apple store. You know, I was thinking maybe it's one of these. But then when I came around the corner, I found out it was a t-shirt store. And look, okay, I love t-shirts. I'm a big fan of t-shirts, and I love really well-crafted t-shirts. But I don't think any t-shirt store deserves the title, the greatest store in the universe. Nothing against t-shirts. I love them. But I do have to say, I applaud, you know, their sincere confidence, right? Um, If they have anything, it's confidence. I mean, confidence. Micaiah showed such wonderful confidence as she read scripture for us this morning in front of all of you adults. Confidence. It's something we all want. You know, it's the confidence to pursue your dreams, the courage to ask that person out on a date, maybe the assurance to finally enjoy your successes or the poise. We use this language of the poise before your boss when the pressure is high, right? This confidence. We all want it. And studies have shown that people who have a healthy level of confidence, they tend to perform better, and they just tend to enjoy life more. So with that in mind, so many people are writing and helping us figure out how to build up our confidence. And especially in the self-help market, self-help market, it's become a booming craze, and we're all buying. Now, before we get further into this topic, I want to share a short video, okay? And while you're watching this video, I want you to think what level of confidence you most resonate with, okay? Let's watch. Well, my pad is very messy, and there's whiskers on my chin, and I'm I ain't got no time to love it, cause my time is always the stuff, just to sit around cleaning. All that groovy kind of stuff, well, I'm a man, yes I am. You know, the, co- the video looked a lot funnier as I watched it earlier this week. And maybe, um, you know, but as we watch this, you know, this video, whether you're laughing at the video or laughing at me, no one laughing at the video, we, we can all resonate with that dog in one sense, right? There are times when we are full of confidence, whether we're around the closest friends that we are, and then there are other times in lives where we've just got our tail between our legs, and we're wrestling through how to be confident. Well, I did some reading on the topic this week, and what I found is that in most of the contemporary literature, there are two primary avenues in which we seek to build up our confidence. One, uh, the first way is is the outside-in approach. And amidst so many uh, folks who affirm this approach, one of them was WikiHow, (laughs) which we all know is a very reputable source, right? Um, And what they say is, if you act confident, you'll feel confident, right? Sit up straight, smile, look people in the eye, 
you know, have the right words to say. And then finally, the confidence will leak from your outside actions into the very source of your being, and you'll finally be that confident person you've always wanted. Um, Well, the problem, I think, with this approach is that eventually it stifles innovation, and, and and it just doesn't work long term. And the fact that it stifles innovation, if you're always playing the part, you're, you're always trying to be someone else, you'll never get to explore your gifts. You'll never figure out how God has uniquely designed you and wired you to contribute to his good world. You're always trying to fit into a pre-made mold by our culture so that you can have this temporary feeling of belonging. But that's not the only problem. Also, the longer you act confident when you really don't feel confident deep within the more you feel this deep ache of hypocrisy. And you go home exhausted because you've been performing this confident performance, this confident display before everyone else, and then you go home and you sit and wallow in your insecurities. Well, there's another approach that goes about gaining confidence from the inside out, right? If you just believe that you're the best, sincere enough in your belief, passionate enough in your longing, um, you'll act like the best. And you'll finally have those confident lives you've always wanted. It's all about mind over matter. Um, Well, the problem with this is that if all your confident thoughts, if you still don't get what you want, which happens a lot, um, you'll be more disillusioned and greater in the pits of despair than you were to begin with. But if you, the worst part is if you actually do get what you want, you actually are successful in what you set out to do, then you become an unbearable person, a very arrogant person. You may have a new job title. You may have more stuff. But you'll find that nobody wants to share those experiences with you because you're an unbearable person, so arrogant and overconfident. Well, so I think the question we all want to know, and we're going to dive into this into our text, is how do we live with confidence without destroying ourselves? How do we live with confidence without destroying ourselves? And how do we get the right kind of confidence? Um, Well, in Christianity, we find there's the third way. A way to have extraordinary confidence without being self-absorbed. And the author of Hebrews says that it all hinges on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Shocker, right? You come to a church and you find out that Jesus is the answer to something. Um, But Jesus, he offers a true and better confidence. And we're going to unpack that a little bit. If you haven't already, would you turn in your Bibles, Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10? If you're using one of the community Bibles, uh, you'll find it on page number 652. Page number 652. And if you look at chapter 10, verse 19, the author of Hebrews begins this section with, Therefore, brothers, and you could say and sisters, he's talking to the whole congregation here, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through that curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, or a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Now, if this is your first time with us, um, over the past few months, we've been walking through this book, the book of Hebrews. And it's a sermon written actually to a first century community of believers who are wrestling in their faith. They're not so confident that Jesus is going to finish what God started in him. And they weren't uh, so sure that they want to continue on this faith journey. Well, in the first nine and a half chapters, 
So you have to remember all of this context up to this point. First nine and a half chapters, the author has been explaining why Jesus is the true and the better way, the better avenue to know God. And he uses this transitional word, therefore, to say that all these first nine and a half chapters, because of all of this, because of all of this, he gives two verses of review here in verses, or actually three, 19, 20, and 21. He says, because of all this, this should give us an outlandish confidence in all of our life. It should, and I use this language of should because we don't do really well at receiving what God has given us freely. We always feel like we've got to do stuff to earn it. And so in our passage this morning, we will see that Jesus offers a true and a better confidence, but we put up three barriers that hinder its full force, okay? So Jesus does offer us a true and a better confidence, but we put up three barriers that hinder gospel confidence. Now, one of the first barriers we put up comes when God actually invites us to draw near. He invites us to come and be with him. And look at verse 22. We read, Let us draw near with a true heart, an authentic heart, and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Even though this call is so inviting, instead of taking that step towards God, we so often, we shrink back in fear. Why don't we step forward in confidence? Well, what we find here in our passage, the main reason the author has to tell us to do something that we don't naturally do is the word shame. Shame. In the movie um, Perks of Being a Wallflower, it kind of came out a few years ago, um, two teenagers, Sam and Charlie, they're talking about their failed relationships, some of these recent failed relationships. And Sam um, asks Charlie, you know, why do I and everyone I love pick people who treat us like we're nothing? And Charlie responds in great wisdom and to a fact that we all know very well, we accept the love we think we deserve. We accept the love we think we deserve. So in our shame, when we're invited to draw near, we know we don't deserve God's love. We know, we know that we don't deserve his care and his compassion and his intervention in our lives. And so we put as much distance between God and ourselves as possible. And shame, we refuse to hear that God has made a way to cleanse our hearts, to cleanse our consciences. In shame, we think hearts sprinkled clean, verse 22. Evil consciences cleansed, bodies washed. Jesus had to die to do this for us? Really? And the hardest reality is that it scares most of us that God wants to give us love we don't deserve. He wants to give us love we don't deserve. I mean, your whole life, many of us in here have been trying to prove either you're beautiful enough, been trying to prove you're smart enough, you're successful enough, that you're holy enough, that you're worth it on your own merit for God to take notice of you. And the harder you work, the greater the distance you put between God and yourself. The more insecure you feel because you don't want to receive his love freely. Now, believe it or not, we can do this very thing when we worship together. Worship can actually distance us from God rather than draw us near. Um, when you come together, we sing songs or the word is preached. The, the passage is read by Micaiah. 
Um, we, we confess our sins together or the lives you lead throughout the rest of the week. In these actions, they can become empty religious activities that actually distance us from God rather than draw us near. And there are two ways I think this kind of skewed worship causes more distance rather than invites us to draw near to him. The first is like so many religious people around the world. You, we come together, we could sing some songs, hear the word preached. But the only reason you come together or the, you live your lives to honor God is so that God does something for you. Um, you may be thinking explicitly or you could even be implicit in this. Is that God, I'm here on Sunday morning. I'm here, um, so I want you to heal my mom. God, I'm going to be opening my Bible to do devotion, so you better bring a spouse. God, I'm going to be engaged in this acts of service so that I get that promotion at work. It all becomes about you trying to manipulate God, doing the right pieces to get what you want, which really has nothing to do with God at all. And what we see is in these acts of empty worship, these religious activities, we slowly are pushing God out of the picture. And it becomes much more about self-sustaining rather than honoring and glorifying God. Genuine worship that draws near to God, it's a worship that focuses and receives what God has already finished in Jesus for you. We sang about it. Lead me to the cross. May I focus more on what you've accomplished for me. This is why our passage says, you know, let us draw near with authentic hearts true to reality, honest, full of assurance. This is another way of saying confidence, full of assurance of faith. We trust in the finished work of God and Jesus. God first moved toward us, and in all acts of worship, it's always a response to what God has already started. You see, it's not us making the first move, getting God to do the one thing we've been wanting him to do, but it's already seeing what he's done in Jesus And so we respond with receiving what he's done in Jesus and praising his name. He's a good God, a compassionate God, a loving God, a gracious God. So I ask all of us this morning, and I'm asking myself, how are we worshiping? How are we worshiping? Another way we can engage in these activities of worship um, in an empty way that pushes God in distance is by limiting where worship happens. Um, Empty religious worship, it becomes relegated to only certain days and certain practices. And God isn't invited to the messy realities of our Monday through Saturday. And this is really convenient, actually, because then we can check off our boxes. It becomes a spiritual to-do list rather than a relationship with God. It becomes much more about tallying your ticks so that God is honored and pleased with you rather than resting in what he's already finished for you. Authentic worship that draws near to God and listens to his invitation to come close sees worship in all of life. Yeah, Sundays are a part. This corporate element is an important and critical piece to the puzzle. But it's not narrowing it down to just specific days. Our response to draw near actually becomes an intersection of heaven and earth in every aspect of our lives every day of the week. It's this sort of worship that transforms taking out the garbage to being just as critical as singing praise on a Sunday morning. You see, this is the way God is calling us to draw near. Don't make it so religious 
that we actually downplay his presence in the rest of our lives throughout the rest of our week. When you're filling out Excel spreadsheets, that really matters to God and he's present. Are you worshiping him through that? Drawing near through your vocation and how he's called you and where he's placed you. Where are you worshiping? Not just how are you worshiping, but where are you worshiping? Are you drawing near in all aspects of your life? You see, this new and better confidence that Jesus offers to draw near is only possible when we, clean, when we let him cleanse us of our shame and we no longer have to put up a front with God or distance ourselves in insecurity. But it's that finished work of Jesus on the cross his death, and then three days later, a confirmation that that death was sufficient by his resurrection that transformed the course of history from then on. A confidence to live before God in a new and living way, we read. A new and living way now. Um, now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that this drawing near, hearing God's call to draw near, means first admitting that Jesus had to do what you couldn't. It's first admitting that Jesus had to take your sinful heart, your destructive behaviors and actions upon himself on the cross, die the death you deserved to die, and find forgiveness in Jesus alone. Yeah, it begins with prayer, but it doesn't ever stop there. It continues in a growing relationship for the rest of eternity. Jesus is the only source of our joyful confidence before God. Now, if you are a Christian this morning, um, this is where we find the great hope that boasting is only relegated to boasting in what Jesus has done on the cross, okay? It transforms. It's not that we don't ever boast, quite frankly, but we boast in something that we never did, but that was done for us, that Jesus Christ went to the cross and died our death, and we celebrate that. And this is where the reformer, Martin Luther, gets the confidence to say something like this. Faith is living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. That's a true and better confidence. And that's what's available to us if we let Jesus remove the barrier of shame. But shame isn't the only barrier we put up. That's why we're invited to draw near. We also, let's look at verse 23, find a second barrier. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The author, he knows our hearts, and the Spirit of God working through his word knows our hearts, and he pleads with us to hold on to the confession of our hope. Why does he have to plead? Why, why does he have to encourage us that God is going to finish what he started? Why does he need to plead with us to hold on tightly without wavering? Because the second barrier to living into the fullness of the confidence of the gospel is paralyzing doubt. Paralyzing doubt. I mean, this morning, you may be going through some serious pain. You may have experienced an intense failure or a not-so-intense failure, but you still feel just as destroyed over the situation. You may be questioning whether all this is really true, and you may have been coming for a while now and asking these questions. Honestly, you may find yourself here this morning and you don't even know why you're here. You don't know if this, any of this is true, but you're here. So when the author of Hebrews 
tells us of our confession of hope, what is he talking about? And how does he have the audacity to say, hold on without wavering? That seems a little bit intense, at least in my perspective, as I was thinking about the reality. Hold on without ever wavering. Okay. Um, Well, our hope comes not from some subjective and shapeless form out there, but the Christian hope is founded from a confession of what God has already done in Jesus and history. The Christian's future is shaped by the past, corroborated by witnesses found throughout the gospel accounts. And throughout the pages of Scripture, we see a God who really is faithful to keep his promises. Um, If you're to look at the earliest summation of Christian faith, uh, the Apostles' Creed, we quote that and we say this together every once in a while. It brings together the early teachings of the whole New Testament in one simple summation. Um, But before it ever tells us of our hope of everlasting life and the promise of the forgiveness of sins, if you follow the flow, what does it say first? First, it talks about what God has already done in Jesus Christ to make our hope sure. And it it may sound to you like I just keep beating the same drum here. That's because the author of Hebrews does, because quite frankly, we are not good at holding on to the confession of our hope without wavering. And the only way this is possible is by what God has done in Jesus already. Look at the middle of, um, or listen rather, to the middle of this, uh, the Apostles' Creed. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, God's only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, And born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And then after we say this together, only after we say this, can we say of a hope of everlasting life and the promise of the forgiveness of sins. The only reason we can hold on to this confession of hope without wavering, literally, it's the language of without bending to the right or to the left, standing amidst the gale force winds of trial, temptation, and pain. The only reason that's possible is because Jesus Christ himself went to the cross without wavering. He did not stray to the left when power was offered by the devil to say, here, I can give you all of this, only you have to bow to me. And forego the cross and all this pain and all this yucky stuff. But he did not stray to the left. Nor did he stray to the right when he sees the cross before him. And they say, if you are the mighty son of God, call the angels down to take you off the cross. Aren't you like the prophet Elijah? But he stays unwavering on the cross for you and for me. This is the foundation of our hope. Our hope is anchored in the bedrock of the gospel. And if we forget that, then we will never hold on without wavering. Now, some of us are really good on the opposite end of holding on to our doubts without wavering. Um, And that can paralyze us. In one sense, our doubts can feel safe um, because we don't have to be tied down to any one perspective. And certain doubt is healthy because what it does is it clarifies what you believe and makes sure that you're not just believing something because somebody else told you about it, but you genuinely trust it. But there's paralyzing doubt where we hold on to our doubts without wavering. And we're told that in doubt we find freedom, right? The ultimate confidence in our culture is to have confidence in nothing. Um, 
But in reality, many modern thinkers have found that doubt can be the greatest prison of all. It can be the greatest prison and slave master of all. Always moving, never settling, never resting or calling a place home. A constant insecurity with the whip of doubt always pushing us along. I, I love the uh, Foster, um, uh, Foster the People's newest album. It's called Supermodel, and they have this song called The Truth. And it continues to rise in the charts. Um, charts? Charts. And um, it speaks to this reality when they sing, I've been trying to relearn my name. It seems like a thousand years I've been out of frame, and I surrender the truth is what, what I've needed from you. I've been floating within your walls of opinion, and I'm tired. I only want the truth. I just find that so interesting in a contemporary, uh, a contemporary band who's asking these questions of epistemology. What is truth? How do we know? And they're tired of just resting in opinions. They want the truth. You know, doubt, it comes to us all, which is why this inside-out approach we talked about earlier for confidence, it just won't do. It just won't do. We eventually will doubt our own confidence and who we are because we're broken and fallen people and we mess up. But in the midst of doubt, I would encourage you to do three things to navigate rather than surrender to doubt. Okay, we need some practical hangers here to knock our way through um, doubt. First, clarify your doubts, okay? Um, If you don't know what your question is, then you can never hope to find an answer, ever. Um, Have conversations with friends. Read good books. Read the Bible. That's an important uh, resource as well. And force yourself to begin to clarify what you don't understand. Otherwise, you're just avoiding the truth because you don't want to deal with what's really out there. So clarify. What are your questions? Secondly, pray through your doubts. Consistently throughout Scripture, we see the true God is a God of truth. The true God is a God of truth, and he longs for you to know what real life is about. He doesn't want you to live in deception. He doesn't want you to live in fragmented communities and relationships. So come to him with your questions, okay? Pray that he would bring you into the truth. This is important. And then finally, third, if you find answers to your questions and you still doubt the answers, then I want to challenge you to doubt your doubts. Why do you doubt the way you doubt? (laughs) I know that sounds kind of strange, but doubt your doubts. Why are you so unwavering on holding on to your doubts as though that has become the bedrock of your new faith? Doubt your doubts. Hold them loosely. Give yourself permission to be a person of hope, okay? God is a God who's faithful to his promises, and we see it across the pages of Scripture. We hear about it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I was thinking about this recently because we are entering uh, spring. We have sprung, in a sense. Um, A God who's infinite in his wisdom and mighty in his power, why did he create the world with four seasons? Some will say, oh, this is a result of the fall because how could Adam and Eve not have clothes, you know, in winter? I don't know. But, but I will say, why, why do we have four seasons now? Why are they there? I mean, could it be, could it be that even in nature, God uses the world as an object lesson of the gospel? Could it be that even in the very fabric of our created world that God is proclaiming the good news of Jesus? New life is possible. We feel the warmth move in. We see the buds finally sprout after they've been dormant all winter. We hear the birds singing songs of life again. Could it be? Well, I was thinking about um, Martin uh, Luther again. You know, I've just been all over the place with him recently. Um, 
at least in his writings, not personally. That would be weird. Um, you know, he went down to Pizza Bella. Um, he handed me his 99 theses. I'm like, what? That's weird. Um, so once more, sorry, that was an insider joke if you're not a Christian. Um, so Martin Luther, he says, Our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. Every leaf in springtime. I mean, you can have assurance in the gospel, friends, but, but you have to let Jesus remove this barrier of paralyzing doubt. Don't hold on to that with unwavering feelings and, 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 and this stubborn reality. You don't have to live hopeless. You don't have to forever stand in insecurity. But hold on to the confession of hope that is anchored in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. For Jesus offers a true and better confidence. But there's one more barrier um, that we put up, and really it's the barrier that builds off the other two. If you look at verses 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now the author tells us that we should be engaged in each other's lives, kind of stirring things up. But for that to happen in a healthy rather than a toxic way, I mean, you can just barge into someone's life and stir things up and cause a ton of havoc, actually. That's very unhealthy. Um, But how do we stir up each other's lives in a healthy way? Well, two things have to happen. One, you have to be proximate. You have to be around people long enough that they actually get to know you and you get to know them so that it's when they speak into your life, it's a safe space. And secondly, you actually have to have the courage to speak into their life. True friends say the hard things to friends, even when it might cost them the friendship. You hear what I'm saying? True friends say the true things to friends, even when it might cost them their friendship. Stirring up one another to love and good works, it takes, once again, confidence. It takes a level of confidence. And so we return here, and one of the greatest barriers to our confidence in Jesus is actually complacency. Complacency is this unhealthy contentment, a false confidence, Um, like a pond that never flows with fresh water. It's a resigning to a stagnant situation and saying, yeah, that's fine. That's okay. And it has two sources, okay? In this language of confidence, it's either... It comes from either overconfidence or underconfidence. Overconfidence or underconfidence. With overconfidence, you're so satisfied with yourself that you don't think you need others. You've learned to neglect needing together, as is the habit of some, because quite frankly, you know yourself better than anyone, and you've taken care of yourself this long. Why do I need anyone else? But there are plenty of times in life where we're unaware of how our actions are affecting those around us, where we're unaware that the actions that we're engaged in are actually destroying ourselves, where we're unaware of how the actions we are are engaging in are destroying our work environment, our home environment, our communities. And one of the most dangerous places is when we are aware, but we've just stopped caring altogether how our actions are destroying ourselves and those around us. Arrogance is always a form of complacency. And complacency will always hinder the true and better confidence in Jesus, which is consistently molding you more and more to be like Christ. 
Now, that's overconfidence. If you look at underconfidence, it's this self-rejection to the point that you regard yourself with such low esteem that you don't think you have anything to offer others. Instead of saying, I don't need other people, you rather say, other people don't need me. You see? There's, this is, this is, these are polar opposites, but they have the same source. You self-select out of community frustrated as to why then your life is so depressing and why you feel like no one cares about what's going on in your life. It's in complacency, this resolve that life is as good as it's going to get by myself, where shame and doubt will always lead to isolation. You see? You see? These two heart conditions of shame and doubt will then isolate you from those around you. But because of Jesus, this is the beauty of the gospel— We are both humbled and also exalted. We're both humbled and exalted. First, we're humbled because we realize, once again, we come back to this hope that we hold on to without wavering, that it has already been done. Jesus, or God looks to us through the finished work of Jesus, his performance. So we're humbled. God loves us not based on what we've done, but what has been done for us. But we're also exalted. We no longer have this underconfidence where we say nobody really needs me because we've been invited, as we see here, into the house of God. Verse 21, we have a great priest over the house of God, not over me and Jesus, but over the house of God. You've been invited in to now be a part of a new family and actually to contribute and participate in the mission of God and bringing about his good world here and now as much as we can until Jesus returns, right? We're still broken. We're still flawed. We're still going to hurt one another. Look, I know, I know none of us really likes the reality of admitting that we need others. You may even be an extrovert in here. I tend to be somewhere in there. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I get laugh up there for sure. Um, You know, even if you're an extrovert, you may like people, but what you don't like is the fact that you need people. No one likes to say they need others, that they need accountability, that they need encouragement, that they need other people to get in their lives and stir it up. But we do. And if you draw near to God with gospel-shaped confidence, he won't leave you alone. Not just his presence, but he'll bring other people into your life who will stir things up to help free you from shame and doubt, to allow the gospel to saturate deeper and deeper into who you are. And he's going to bring you to other people to be the agent that it continues to free people from shame and doubt. I recently have been praying a prayer that I learned from an author, speaker. He's a former pastor, Paul Tripp. Um, And it has three components, and I wanted to share them with you. Maybe you'll find this helpful in your prayers. It says, God, please help me today. God, please send your, your helpers to me. And then thirdly, God, empower me to have the humility and strength to receive the help they offer. God, help me. God, send your helpers to me. And God, empower me to have the humility and strength to receive the help they offer. Now, it's a prayer that captures, I think, the right kind of confidence. The confidence that God does hear our prayers, that he does care about us, that he loves us, and it's been shown in the gospel, and we are loved through the gospel. And it's a prayer of boldness rather than arrogance. Um, Knowing that 
that we have this humility and this dependence. Humility before God and dependence upon others interacting in our lives. Sometimes we, we stand on the rooftop surrounded by a flood asking for God to deliver us. And he sends others in boats. You know, you've probably even heard this illustration. He sends others in boats and say, hey, you want to ride? And we say, no, we're waiting on God to deliver. And he's using others right then to bring a pathway of deliverance. He's using others to extend his love, to stir things up onto love and good works and to encourage you. And I don't just share this prayer so that it enriches your prayer life, although that's a good thing. But I want you to know that many of you in here may be the answer to someone else's prayer who prays this. Um, But it'll never happen if you keep up this barrier of complacency, whether it be overconfidence or underconfidence. This is why we value Sunday mornings, uh, worshiping together, and this is why we're excited about launching community groups. You saw the video again this morning. It's in each of these moments where we're building our confidence in the gospel because of what God has done in Jesus and by having another relational touch point, we have the opportunity to stir up love and good works and encouragement in one another. We can't do this alone. You know, if you want to know about Jesus and you just want to grow in information, you can listen to a podcast, right? We are in the technological age. You can watch tons of preachers on your computer screen and never do church, never have church, never really know Jesus. Because if you want to follow Jesus, you'll never follow him alone. You hear that? If you want to follow Jesus, you'll never follow him alone. It wasn't Jesus and one other apostle, yeah? It was Jesus and 12. And one of those guys was pretty whacked out, right? And yet Jesus invested in them. Um, They were all kind of whacked out, just as we are. but, But if you want to follow Jesus, you can't follow him alone. And no matter your past hurts and relationships, and that may be really hard because you've had some deep wounds and hurts from others. Hear this. In the gospel, Jesus offers a true and better confidence that empowers you to break down the barriers of complacency and to actually be loved by others and to love others, to stir up others and to be stirred up by others. So I want to ask us this morning, where do you continue to build up barriers? Where are you still wrestling through insecurity? Is it it shame? Is it doubt? Is it complacency? We need to let Jesus tear down these barriers and hear him when he says, draw near, hold fast, consider others. It's only through the gospel that that's possible. It's not an outside-in approach where if you just do the right things, you'll finally feel better. It's not an inside-out approach where if you just convince yourself, it's not based on what you've done or based upon what you think you can do but it's based on what Jesus has already done for you and resting in what he will do in you. It's worlds apart. And when Jesus has done this construction work on our hearts um, and in our communities, we'll be able to say in line with the confidence of the Apostle Paul, this is one of my favorite passages, and I want to close this morning with this in Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. This is gospel-shaped confidence. Listen. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. 
Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, any of these insecurities? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus offers a true and better confidence. Will you receive it? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We draw near, we pray because you first drew near to us. God, you sent your son Jesus to become human, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, sinless, the life we were designed to live, and then died the death we deserve to die, and three days later rose again and gave us an unwavering hope. May we rest in the gospel, this good news of Jesus. May it then give us confidence to follow you, to know you, to trust in you, and to reach out to others and point them to you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.